0: You're listening to The Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on July 30th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. Uh, there's a question here, why math has an order of operations, or is it just because we decided on that? Okay. So let me start off by explaining what order of operations is about. Uh, if you uh, write something like two plus three times four, what does it mean? You write two a plus sign, three, a times sign, four. What does that mean? Well, it could mean add two and three together, then multiply the result by four, or it could mean multi- work out three times four first and then do two plus that at the beginning. What does it mean? Well, if you look at, for example, Wolfram language, our computational language, what does two plus three times four turn into? It turns into the, the, the three times four turns into the function times with two arguments, three and four, and then the two plus turns into plus of two comma times three plus three comma four. So that is this, is this thing that is a, a collection of the, the function. Is, it defines that there are a sequence of functions that are being used to those computations and at that point, it is a feature of the underlying computational language that the arguments of a function are evaluated before the function itself is evaluated. So in that setup, if we got that thing that says plus of 2, comma times of 3, 4, uh, we, we've defined what order we should do these operations in. But when we just write down 2 plus 3 times 4, there's this question of how do we parse that? How do we decide what that means? Let me give an analogy actually that occurs to me in natural language. uh, In natural language, we we, we have to decide, is the times a higher precedence operator? Is it something that's gonna grab its arguments first with higher precedence than the plus that is going to sort of come in later? And, or, or how is it going to work? Well, they have the same kinds of issues in in English. So we might say, um, let's see, uh, let's see if I can make up a sentence that will have this uh, issue. Um, Let's think. We need to figure out a sentence where there will be a word that can um, go with two different possible things depending on how how things are grouped. well, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of a famous um, one that is a little bit about grouping. You know, uh, I think it was the title of, of a book about punctuation. A panda comes into some place and uh, uh, eats, shoots, and leaves, which if you punctuate it in one way, it says a panda eats, shoots like bamboo shoots, and leaves. It could also mean the panda is in the Wild West or something, and uh, you know, goes into a saloon and eats, and then comma shoots and leaves. So that's an example in English where it matters kind of how the grouping works. And you can indicate that grouping uh, by a comma, perhaps in that case, but there are other cases where the way the grouping works depends on sort of the conventions about what things mean. So in the case of math, this question of grouping, uh, the, the uh, person who asked the question here asked sort of is it arbitrary what the order of operations is? the answer is yes, it's arbitrary. When those notations were made up in the 1400s or so uh, they just sort of evolved as being that was how the that the times would be done before the plus was done and so on. Um, actually when you get into other kinds of operations uh, when you do things like um, well actually it's not so obvious and some in some parts of math, it's not so obvious how the grouping works. So for example, if I say 1 minus 2 minus 3, what does that mean? It could mean 1 minus 2 minus 3, where the 2 minus 3 is in parentheses, or it could mean 1 minus 2 minus 3. So that's what's called associativity, which way round things group when you just have a single operator just to explain a little bit about about sort of the background to this when the, the what you are basically trying to do is to turn a sequence of characters into something that can be interpreted as this kind of set of functions to apply in a sense you've got to turn that sequence of characters into this kind of tree that says do this then this then this it's kind of like when people learn to do sentence diagramming in english and you say, this is the sentence, now let's identify the noun phrase, the verb phrase, the noun phrase that correspond to subject, verb, object, let's say, Um, that kind of diagramming, that sort of hierarchical diagramming, you do exactly the same thing in computer languages, and uh, they tend to operate in a way where they're so-called context-free languages, where basically the structure of that tree that you produce has the property that every time you have anytime you have a, uh, a, a, a a sort of piece of the linguistics that looks like this, it will be able to have the same subpieces wherever it occurs. In other words, the question of whether that noun could really be broken into an adjective and a noun or something like that, that is allowed to happen. Whenever you have a noun phrase, the noun phrase could be a single noun or it could be an adjective followed by a noun. Both are allowed and it's context-free. It doesn't matter where that noun phrase occurs, that that kind of breaking into uh, the, the adjective and the noun can occur, that that happens wherever the noun phrase occurs. And it's the same thing in computer languages, that they tend to be defined by this kind of uh, sort of thing that says, and now you have... This intermediate object that's a little bit like a noun phrase, and it can be decomposed into this, and that decomposition works wherever you put it. So the the problem of parsing is the problem of how do you turn a string of characters like two plus three times four into this hierarchical thing that will eventually be plus of two comma times of three comma four. How do you how do you arrange that uh, that transformation to happen? Okay, so. The thing you have to decide in two plus three times four is which operator binds more tightly, which operator has higher precedence, which operator should be uh, used first. And the convention is that times is used before plus. Now, if you have a single operator, like something like one minus two minus three, then you have the question of what's called associativity. How should the pieces of that uh, that minus sign being being used, how should they associate? Should it be one minus two minus three, or should it be one minus two minus three? Okay, so in the case of subtraction it 's usually taken to be one minus uh, sorry it's usually taken to be yeah one minus two minus three let 's do division let's say you 've got two slash three slash four. What does that mean? Does that left associate in the sense that it's what did I say two slash three? and then that whole thing slash four, or is it two slash three slash four? And the results are different. They're mathematically different things. So it matters whether it's left associative or right associative. In the case of division, it's usually assumed to be left associative. Okay, let's do one more example. Let's do power. Let's say you say two to the power three to the power four. Let's say you write that as two wedge three wedge four. What does that mean? That's actually not very well defined in in standard math. Nobody really usually talks about what that means in standard math. So if you make a computer language, you have to make the decision, what are you going to have that mean? If it was two to the power three, all to the power four, left associative, like slash and, and minus, that wouldn't be so useful because two to the power three, all to the power four is the same as two to the power three times four, just as a mathematical fact about powers. So it's more useful to say that power right associates so that two wedge three wedge four is actually the equivalent of two wedge parenthesis three wedge four. And I should explain, uh, perhaps it's obvious that um, parentheses are the way you sort of specify how things are going to be grouped. Um, You often write things without parentheses, but if you want to say, Instead of the two plus three times four, if you wanted to say, "I want the two plus three done first, you put the put two plus three in parentheses and then say times four so that was um, uh, the, 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 the anyway the, the the concept here is this there's this notion of of precedence of operators like plus is below times and precedence, and power is above times, so that means that uh, that a power gets done first, binds more tightly, and so on. So you might ask, how are the precedences of all these different operators that you see in math books? How are they determined? It's actually a very strange thing. I, I looked at this in the 1990s because we were introducing all kinds of exotic operators into Wolfram language, and I wanted to know, were people even consistent in the way that you know a Circle Plus what the precedence of that was relative to a co-product symbol, relative to uh, all kinds of different things. Were they consistent? The answer is there is a surprising degree of consistency in the mathematical literature. There's actually a correlation with something else, which is when people typeset operators, they usually use just a little bit more space if the things have lower precedence, if they bind less tightly, it's a sort of more airy presentation as if to say, oh, this thing isn't going to be as grabby with its arguments, it's a looser kind of thing. So, so in the end, this, this question of, of uh, what is the precedence of operators, what is the, which is the fancy version of the what people learn as order of operations in elementary math, that's something that is really was determined historically And some things are more useful than others. Like the example I gave you of power, it's more useful to say it's right associative than that it's left associative. In the case of of subtraction, it's more useful to say it's left associative because it's super confusing if it's right associative and one minus two minus three computes the two minus three first and then says one minus the minus one and then that's actually one plus one. And it's very confusing and it's not what you typically want. So one tries to pick precedences and associativities to be kind of what people expect, and people have been surprisingly consistent in what they want in in those regards. Now, the question of which mathematical operations get actual symbols, individual symbols, for example, that's another interesting question. And in the history of mathematics, for a long time, there wasn't mathematical notation. People would just describe things using words. Mathematical notation was invented 1400s to 1600s, mostly. And um, it was very important for the communication of mathematics. People, before that time, people had a hard time really discussing algebra and quadratic equations and solving them and all those kinds of things. Quadratic equations had been studied in antiquity, but the sort of streamlined treatment of them using algebra really had to wait for people to invent these notations like plus signs and equal signs and things like that. It's worth realizing that that invention of that notation was in some ways quite arbitrary. I mean, for example, the equal sign, this is equal to that. Great. It's a, it's a nice sign. We all know it now. There's also the greater than sign, which means, you know, A is greater than B. There's a sort of a, you know, it's a, it's a um, uh, sort of V turned on its side with the big end towards the A and the little end towards the B. That means A is bigger than B. So that, you could people had various notations for equality that were so, sort of the, the the notion of equality. Now is kind of like instead of having a greater than sign with a with a, a big end and a small end, the equal sign is like equal equal kind of size on both sides. It's like a like a you know there's an equal separation between the lines on both sides, and that's kind of how it's indicating that this is equal to that. And um, the thing that uh, People had different notations, like this chap called Gottfried Leibniz, who's the guy who invented the integral sign, for example. He had a notation for equality and inequality that was based on having a, a scale, you know, a weight, the a scale for measuring weight, where the scale will be down on one side and up on the other. So it would be like, this is bigger than that. So the scale is lower on that side than on the other side. And if it's equal, the scales are are sort of uh, uh, level. So he had notations where where he had things going down on one side, up on the other, rather than at the notation that kind of survived, which was the bigger on one side, smaller on the other. And, you know, it's worth realizing there's a lot of tricky stuff with notation. Like if I write A equals B equals C, you might think, what does that mean? Does that mean that A, B, and C are all equal to each other? Or does that mean A is equal to B and B is equal to C? Well, okay, because of the properties of equality, that means all three of those things are equal. But when it gets a little bit more elaborate in what we mean by equality, it's not so obvious that all three things should be the same. And it could be the case that they were just the same in pairs and so on. And, and again, those are a bunch of conventions that one has to pick explicitly when one's making a, a computational language. When one writes math, one one usually just sort of hopes for the best and assumes that, that if there is some ambiguity, people will understand it from the words around it. But um, you know, there are different notations that were invented. Like I mentioned, Gottfried Leibniz invented the integral sign. He also invented the, the d by dx kind of notation for derivatives, and it's, it's pretty famous Uh, thing, you know, when when people learn calculus and they learn dy divided by dx, then the immediate thing that people say is, well, I know standard algebra, why can't I just cancel the d's? Well, you can't because they represent infinitesimals and there's a whole story about how calculus works, but Leibniz, when he invented that notation, was very concerned that people would just cancel the d's, which has been a a long-term problem in learning calculus ever since. Leibniz was also very down on the chap called William Outred, who invented the time sign because he said, people, it's going to look like an X to people. How are people going to distinguish it from an X? And he had a good point there. But uh, in fact, the time sign has survived even despite that ambiguity. So the history of mathematical notation and these conventions about mathematics is a story very similar to the history of natural language uh, where it was, in, in, things were introduced. Things took, uh, you know, took took on, um, uh, became popular, and so on. There was some amount of design done. Um, I think we know a lot more now about how to design computational language. I like to think we do. And so many of the things, many of the mistakes that could have been made in the past, we wouldn't make today. An example where, uh, was something of a mistake, where where you're defining uh, there was a language called APL developed by a person called Ken Iverson in the 1960s and a little bit beyond, which was an attempt to kind of provide a notation for algorithmic kinds of operations. And he invented a very large number of new sort of symbols like plus signs and times signs, except he'd have, you know, a triangle up with a line through it, and he'd have some kind of different uh, kinds of Greek-like letters slightly modified and so on. And the problem was that there were a lot of good and interesting ideas but there were just too many that came too quickly, and people just didn't learn them and couldn't understand them. And when you first see it for the first time, it looks like some weird hieroglyphic script, so to speak, that you, you couldn't possibly imagine decoding. But, uh, okay, that, that's um, a little bit um, uh, comments on um, why math has an order of operations. Uh, uh, there's some, let's see. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably the, okay. So, so one of the other issues actually, which I'm slightly sliding over is that when you say uh, something like uh, one over two, one slash two slash three, one feature of that is that the slash operation always has two arguments. You're always dividing this by that for plus it can actually be an NRE operator where you have any number of things all being added together, sort of together. You, c- you can decompose it as you're adding the first two things together, then you're adding one more onto that thing that you've already made, then you're adding one more to that. So it can be decomposed into a series of binary operations Plus has the property that it is associative, so it doesn't matter whether it's been decomposed into those binary operations or not. Um, that there, there's, it doesn't matter in which order you decompose it. You could you could arrange the parentheses in different ways, and you'll still get the same answer for plus because plus has this property of associativity. It is not the case that these different operations uh, have the feature that it matters to the answer, whether you do in the example with plus and times, whether you do the plus the times before the plus or the other way around, that matters to the answer. You can invent kind of operations in mathematics where it doesn't matter what the order is. Just like the example of plus that I just gave, it doesn't matter. The answer that you'll get by doing this addition is the same regardless of of how you do, how you collect the numbers together. And so you can you can set up mathematical operations which have this feature that it doesn't matter what order you do the kind of collecting together in, but the ones that are typically useful in mathematics, only some of them have that feature and they don't have that feature relative to each other, so to speak. And, and by the way, when you do have that feature, it has a lot of very cool consequences. When you do have this feature, you can sort of do it in any way. Um, you can sort of collect the things together in any order it has a big consequence in the amount of in in how you actually do computations because it allows you to kind of clump pieces of computations together and often something where it would take you for example let's say you have n things that you have to do something with it might take you n squared operations to do it if you had to do sort of each piece separately because you can clump in different ways you can reduce that to n log n, to much faster computation. So that that kind of ability to associate and clump things in different ways is pretty important in, in practical computation. But in general, you could imagine a mathematics where the order of operations never matters because all the operators that you deal with sort of have this property that they sort of associate to distribute over each other and so on. But that's not the mathematics that we actually have. And you can ask the question, uh, well, why isn't it? And that's something that once you have things like integers, whole numbers, and you're doing, so, so the operations that you do on integers, you might say plus, times, power, where do these come from? Why are they the natural operations to do? There's actually a very good reason for that, which is if you say two plus two plus two, you do it three times. Well, iterated addition, two plus two plus two, 3 times is 3 times 2. So in other words, multiplication is iterated addition. What's iterated multiplication? 2 times 2 times 2. That's a power. That's 2 to the power 3. So it's a very natural sequence. The, the beginning of the sequence is the pure successor operation. Just add 1 to an integer, a very basic operation on integers. and that's and so repeated successoring is addition. So you're saying, Plus one, plus one, plus one, plus one, a bunch of times. And that's, that's, so you're, you're, let's see, how does this work? When you do, uh, yeah, but basically you're, 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 you're successoring multiple times, that makes an integer. You keep successoring, that makes, that adds another integer to it. So in a sense, addition is repeated successoring. um, And, um, Multiplication is repeated addition, powers are repeated multiplication, you can ask what are repeated powers, that would be like saying two to the two to the two to the two, some number of times. That operation is sometimes called power towers, sometimes called tetration, and things get very big very quickly, like two to the two is four, two to the two to the two, remember that we're grouping them as two to the two to the two, so two to the four, which is 16, um, and then the next thing up would be uh uh two to the two to the 16, which is two to the power six hundred uh, two to the power sixty-four thousand, roughly. That's a pretty big number. And the two to the two to the two to the two to the two thing grows very, very quickly. So you might ask, can you make a function which just says do uh like you go from, from plus to times to power to tetration, what's next? Well, you can do iterated tetration as well. You can actually make a function that where one of the parameters in the function is, is how deeply to nest this process. Actually, the, the most common version of this is the thing called the Ackermann function, which was invented around 1920. And uh, it, it's a function where one argument is basically says how many times to nest, and the other is what to put in it. So it, it will give you things like two to the two to the two to the two, or it'll give you two plus two plus two plus two plus two, depending on whether its first argument is saying just do the one level pluses or the next level timeses or the next level powers or the tetration, whatever else. And that that function is sort of an important counterexample to various things because it's a very rapidly growing function as you can guess from from the, the way I've defined it. But it's sort of inevitable by the time you have integers that you will have to have orders of operations that differ between these different layers in this kind of hierarchy of iterated kinds of operations. Okay. Well, let's see. There's a question here from Ardol. Uh, What does a day in the life of a scientist look like? Depends a little bit what kind of scientist. Um, Let's break it down between experimental scientists and theoretical scientists. So experimental scientists, the... uh, The big point is do an experiment and make it work. So you might be building apparatus. You might be doing electronics. You might be uh, putting together some complicated piece of glassware. You might be um, doing those kinds of things to try to set up your apparatus. Then what tends to be more and more the story of doing science is you get data, it arrives in your computer, and you have to analyze it. And so you're doing lots of kind of data analysis and One of the things that to realize about doing, well, many kinds of science, but particularly experimental science is, you know, any any serious experiment is going to take quite a while. So on any given day, it's very unlikely that you're going to be saying, aha, I made a great discovery today. You'll be building up some whole activity that you'll be setting up this experiment and so on and so on and so on. It might take you weeks, months, Uh, if it's a big experiment in some big area of physics or something, it might take five years to set up the experiment, and it might involve 100 people setting up the experiment. And um, you know, it might be some giant thing that costs hundreds of millions of dollars, um, or it might be a tabletop kind of experiment, but where, again, you have to sort of gradually build it up, build up the experiment and so on, and then you start taking data and you realize, oh, there was this thing wrong, and the thing doesn't work quite right, and I have to change it. I analyze the data, I see it isn't quite right, I change it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually, uh, you may get results, and then there's the question of you know, making sure the results are correct, not you know one of the traps is always you think you're going to get such and such a result. You keep tweaking your experiment, eventually you get that result. you say, "Ah, I'm done well. Maybe you're not, because actually maybe that was wrong and you've just been tweaking lots of tweaks. You got it to the point where you got what you expect, but you should keep checking it to make sure it really was right. But I think a decent fraction, I don't know what fraction, I would guess it's probably, you know, average average of experimental scientists, probably two thirds of the time is is spent doing data analysis of one kind or another, which means, uh, you know, how do you, how do you, Take, get the signal out of the data? How do you find that signal from all of this kind of randomness in, in the data, things like that? That's typical experimental science kind of thing. Theoretical science is, well, again, uh, it, some people do it in a very kind of pencil and paper type way of, I'm just going to think about this. I'm going to write notes and you know sort of do it by hand and so on. I think very much increasingly, and this has been a thing that kind of I've provided the tools for in my life, I suppose, is, is doing these things by computer and being able to do experiments on a computer where you're you're setting up some program and you're saying, this program represents the thing I'm trying to figure out. This program represents my model for how this particular system in, in nature might work or something. Now let me run this program and see what happens. And so a largest fraction of the time is spent uh, making Uh, you know, programs, running the programs, trying to understand the results of those programs and so on. And some part of the time is spent just like in experimental science. It's kind of like designing what you're going to do, understanding the results you get, making conclusions from that. It's, It's pretty rare. I mean, when I do science, for example, I manage to spend quite a lot of my time doing essentially conceptual thinking um, and sort of figuring things out at a level, uh, I mean, for me, I, I, I find it really useful to do actual exa- examples. And the fact that I'm very fluent in actually doing computer experiments is super useful and much to be recommended for people interested in theoretical science, um, because it's that's what you need. And similarly with experimental science, being really fluent in computational language to do data analysis and so on, that's really an important thing because you know, the question is, well, you've got this data and you're like, well, I just wonder whether if I, if I studied this correlation of that, whether I would see something. Well, if it's going to take you a week to study this correlation with that, you're like, oh, I can't be bothered. I probably don't know what I'm talking about. But if it's going to, if you're fluent enough, that it's going to take you 15 minutes, you try it. And by golly, that might be the great discovery so to speak. So it's, it's really important to be fluent in these tools. And I think people, um, you know, that seems to be an increasing dividing line in, in terms of effectiveness in science these days. But then, you know, in, in, if you're a, an actual scientist, you eventually have to explain what you're doing to other people. That means you're writing papers and things like that. Uh, I have to say that in my experience, it's worthwhile starting to write the description of what you're doing pretty early because it helps you to understand it yourself. You have to know sort of the main results you're getting, but then you start trying to write about it. And usually in the process of writing about it, you'll understand it more clearly and you'll get more results. Um, And then in terms of, uh, well, and now it breaks down in terms of what kind of science you do. If you're an academic doing science, typically your average academic scientist is a professor who makes a living by teaching students and so that's a part of, of people's lives. Um, there's also kind of the whole dynamic of uh, going to scientific conferences and interacting with other scientists and so on, and presenting your work. And uh, uh, th- that that's sort of another another piece of the process of being a scientist. And and so sometimes there's kind of a um, uh, you know a perk for scientists, like there are often. You know, in, in the days when there are in-person conferences, there are conferences, you know, scattered all over the world. And there are people who will spend their time, you know, particularly during the summer, hopping from one exotic location to another, going to scientific conferences. Um, I, I think it's people find that quite a lot of fun. And, and um, uh, there's sort of a, groups of people in different fields who will frequent the different conferences and so on. It's quite a sort of social scene. It, 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 uh, I mean, there's much more to say about um, kind of the, the, what it feels like to do science. But I would say that the, the thing to realize is uh, doing science from a research point of view is a little bit similar, but not that similar to doing science in an educational kind of I'm going to do the exercises in the textbook kind of way. Because one feature of exercises in textbooks is, you know, they've got answers, it isn't the case that you might get in some direction where you're, you're going, and it's like, oh my gosh, there may just not be any way to answer this question, because nobody's ever done it before. And when you do research, you're constantly in this, well, maybe nobody actually answered this, and, and maybe there just isn't an answer. Maybe in the current state of whatever it is, mathematics, physics, science, whatever, maybe we just can't answer this question. Maybe we have to come back in 50 years, and then we might be able to answer it you never know. And so it's something where it takes a big part of the skill of doing research well is to have some idea what's going to be answerable, what's not, what are the right kinds of things to study, what are the questions which are going to potentially have interesting answers rather than having answers where the answer is, oh, well, it depends, there isn't a definite answer type thing. And then once you have some idea of of what the answer, uh, what, what, what might be worth answering. The question is what kind of rough methods might you use? Are they methods you already know? Are there methods you have to go and learn? Um, Are they, uh, is it going to be something where this is gonna be a huge project and you're making a huge commitment to try and study this? Or is it gonna be something where you're just gonna do it as a little bit of fun that's gonna take you a couple of weeks and maybe you'll get a good result or or not. So those are are some of the kinds of things. I, I would say that for me personally, uh, insofar far as I do science, my my life day in the life as a scientist is probably very untypical because I'm not for example uh, I'm not a uh, professor type I instead I'm a tech company CEO so the, the the part of my time that isn't doing basic science is doing uh, designing products and languages and running companies and things like this. Um, but for me uh, the you know I can usually, uh, you know, and a, like this morning, actually, I I had a, a, uh, um, I started my day a little bit earlier than usual, so I didn't have an initial meeting, so I spent an hour doing, uh, doing science. What did that actually mean? Well, I was writing a piece of code to try and figure out something that I had sort of a partial answer to, and I didn't quite finish during the hour that I had available, and I wrote this Wolfram language notebook that kind of explains what I was doing so that I can remember what I did. And uh, I have sort of a, a partially finished result that was looking like it was going in a really interesting direction. And it looks, um, I'm, very, I'm very enthusiastic about it, but I didn't have a chance to work on it yet. Um, I'll probably have a chance uh, later today or tomorrow to work on it. Um, and I think that's, uh, uh, but you know, one of the things to realize about doing science, you know, I've been lucky enough to be able to do science with good tools, and sometimes with good strategy about what to study and that means the rate of discovering things can can be quite high but one of the things it's a, it's a funny business because you might think i mean i i suppose that if you kind of uh uh if you watch me doing these things and and in fact i i do a sort of this this horribly archival thing of recording a bunch of the video from my, uh, from my computer screen when I'm working on stuff, just because I think it's kind of fun uh, to record what actually was involved in, in figuring things out. And a lot of what you'll see is kind of writing code, debugging code, writing uh, comments about things, making various kinds of, uh, uh, jotting down various kinds of ideas, things like this. But somehow it's very, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be some moment when something gets discovered But often you don't even know when that moment was because you don't have quite the right context to know that was important or something happens and it's very surprising. And the question is, is that a discovery or did I make a mistake somewhere or am I confused about something? And it's not something where you say, look, I discovered something. Wow. That happens occasionally, but more often it's something unexpected happens. Let me try and figure out what's going on. Is it a mistake Is it a confusion or is it a discovery? And so that that sort of blunts the moment of, aha, I just made a discovery this instant type thing. Although that can happen too. And particularly when it comes to sort of understanding how things fit together, that can be something where, for me at least, there's sort of a moment when when that discovery gets made. And, And usually for me, uh, sometimes I make that discovery as I'm trying to write or describe what's going on. That's for me a very useful way to sort of uh, uh, unravel what, what's happening. There's a question here about uh, what's my opinion about reproducible research? Well, so one of the issues is when you're doing experimental science, for example, it's do you, if you say, if I feed the mouse, this kind of chemical, then the mouse will be able to do the maze twice as fast, let's say, and you observe that with one mouse, a mouse named Fred, let's say, that that happens. Okay, uh, if, if, you did, if you used Fred the next day, would the same thing happen? If you used uh, Jane instead, would the same thing happen? If you used, um, you know, how reproducible is this experiment? How much is it the case that every time you feed the mouse this particular thing, the mouse gets smarter at doing the maze? Or is that something that just happened once? So it's important in making kind of solid conclusions in science that things be reproducible, not least because there may be circumstances. It may be that the that why did the mouse do the maze twice as fast? Well, maybe it's because it was... Um, let's say it did the maze the second time in the evening rather than in the, in the afternoon, rather than in the morning. And the second time it did the maze, the sun was shining through the lab window and illuminated this different thing. And so the mouse could see the end of the maze more quickly. I'm making all of this up, just as an example. Um, and, and, and so something you didn't know, you didn't notice that, oh, you did all those experiments in the afternoon and all those other ones in the morning. Um, but in fact, that feature is what made the experiment come out the way it came out and it had nothing to do with what the mouse had eaten. And so that, that's a reason to want to do reproducible experiments to say, I could give that, I could, somebody else's lab to do the same experiment and their mouse maze will be placed in a different place and they'll have different sort of other factors contributing and yet they still get the same answer. We just discovered the uh, make the mouse twice as smart drug or something um, in, uh, uh, in, in, this, in this experiment. And, and it's now a reproducible thing that you can take it anywhere and, and reproduce it. So, so that's a, it tends to be an important thing. And when there are results which are not reproducible, people sometimes say, ah, not interesting, not reproducible. That's probably a mistake too, because there's some pretty major kinds of things that people have studied where they're really remarkable phenomena, really remarkable and surprising effects where they only happened a few times and they only happen in some particular person's lab, and everybody else says, oh, nobody can reproduce that, must be nonsense. It's probably not always the right conclusion. Sometimes it'll be the right conclusion, but often it's not the right conclusion. Often it's just like you didn't think of the critical thing, which, yes, the person who originally did the experiment didn't list that as one of the things that is a feature of how they did the experiment, but actually it turns out to be the critical thing. That, you know, some particular, I don't know, you know, the, the, the fact that the lab was at, in Denver, not at sea level, was the critical thing. And nobody knew that and, uh, or something, you know. And, and that was the fact that it only happened in the lab in Denver. Well, you know, you shouldn't just say, oh, the person who did the experiment must have, must have got it wrong. It's like, well, maybe there was something we didn't think of that makes that experiment come out that way and another one not come out that way. So it's a tricky thing. Now, it's also worth saying that when you do computer experiments, most of the time they're just reproducible because you have a program, you run it, it does the same thing. If you have random numbers, if that, that people sometimes get a bit confused about this, you can, which are chosen by the computer, for example, then yes, you run at different times, the random numbers can be different. Like when you do machine learning, it's pretty common that you're kind of using lots of random numbers to pick things. And so things can come out differently. But you can always, on a computer, you can always seed the random numbers, say, I'm going to use this procedure for making random numbers, and I'm always going to get the same sequence of random numbers because I seeded the procedure the same way. And so then it becomes reproducible. But so typically, with computer experiments, reproducibility is not really a problem. The, uh, that's something I, I found it amusing when I, when I published my big book called The New Kind of Science that's full of computer experiments, and people are saying, this experiment must be wrong, and it's like, what do you mean? You just run the thing. You know, here's the code. Here's the here's the you know here's the rule that's being used. Just run it. You get the answer. Now, that's all well and good if the if the program that you're running is one that you as a human can read and it's in some nice computational language and so on. It can also be the case that things can go wrong in computer experiments because you can have this giant Uh, program, and there's a bug in it, and it doesn't do what you expect it to do. If you're doing sort of pure uh, sort of uh, studies of the computational universe, typically the question is, what does this program do? And the program is the program you have, and there's no notion of a bug in the program, because what you're actually studying is the program itself. But like famously, when people were studying supernovas, exploding stars, back in the 1970s and 1980s, there were these giant computer codes that were supposed to represent all the nuclear reactions that were happening in stars. And those computer codes said, oh, whoops, stars will collapse and not explode. They couldn't explain supernovas. And eventually that was traced to a bug, just a typing mistake basically in this big program that had been used to study supernovas. And so that was an example of where the, the, it was perfectly reproducible. You could run the program as many times as you want, and um you would end up with um uh with the same wrong answer because uh because of this bug in the program. Now, in terms of reproducibility of, of lab experiments, one of the things that's happening is the increasing automation of of, of labs. I mean, there, a lot of times still in, in biology and in chemistry labs, there's been um uh, you know, people tend to do things with hat by hand, you know, there'll be a pipette, you, you, you know, pipette some, some liquid from one thing to another and you, you put it in these different, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, 96 well plates or whatever else it is. And you're doing a lot of stuff still by hand, but there also are machines that are, that are, uh, uh doing, I don't know, DNA sequencing or whatever else. And, Increasingly, there's an increasing level of automation in labs, and the more things are automated, the more they will tend to be quite reproducible. Actually, theres I, I should give a shout out to a company that uses our technology a lot called Emerald Cloud Lab that's basically uh, has the mission of completely automating biology and chemistry labs, and they have a very impressive facility of, full of uh, you know, robots and things for... Um, for just going from essentially a software specification in Wolfram language of an experiment that you want to do, and then, you know, you press go, and, you know, things swing into action, and with uh, uh, the, the experiment is automatically and reproducibly done. Now, so that's, a, that's an example. I think one will see that as a, I think that will be a very successful effort, and what we'll see increasingly in biomedical kinds of papers, they will just be a Wolfram language script that just says, this is the experiment that was done. And it's not kind of a description in words, it's just a script. And you take that script and you run it on sort of any instance of the Emerald Cloud Lab and it'll get the same result. Um, And that's sort of, I think, gonna be an important thing for reproducibility in biomedical science, because it's not, doesn't depend on, oh, how well did you pipette that thing and so on. It's done by a machine which can have, you know, well-defined quality control and all those kinds of things. There's a one different issue about reproducibility, which has to do with situations where, uh, for whatever reason, you think there's sort of randomness coming into the system. So a classic example is in fluid flow. Let's say you, you drop some, a drop of ink into some water. You make this very elaborate pattern of sort of the ink flowing around and so on. The question is, if you do that ink dropping another time, is it going to be the same pattern? Well, if you do it carefully enough, it will be the same pattern. But some things people believe it's essentially impossible to do it carefully enough to make it be the same pattern. They believe that it matters what kind of which position in the fluid, which exact molecule in that little ink drop was involved in in making it produce this pattern or that. And there's a whole idea usually goes under the name of chaos theory um, that has to do with sensitive dependence on initial conditions, the possibility that if you just change by this tiny, tiny amount, one part in a trillion, 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 exactly where that ink drop falls, that eventually, as the, as the whole pattern develops, that eventually some feature of that pattern will depend on that trillion, trillion, trillionth part of exactly how the thing was started off. And people have believed that sort of some of the complexity of things you see in nature can be attributed to that dependence on the trillion, trillion, trillionth part or whatever it is. I think that's actually not really right. Uh, That effect does happen, but it's quite rare. And the effect that's much more common is that systems will produce complicated behavior, but they will do so in a reproducible way. It's like, you know, when you compute the digits of pi, you know, it's 3.1415926, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That digit sequence is quite random, but yet every time you compute it, it will be the same. And I think that's more what's going on in a lot of these systems in nature, if you do the experiment carefully enough, it will be reproducible. You don't, don't have to get it reproduced at the kind of uh, molecular or quantum type level to be able to, to get the same result. I should explain if I'm really going to be complete in answering this question about reproducibility, I should talk about quantum mechanics. And I should talk about the fact that in quantum mechanics, there's this idea that when you make a measurement, what, that all that the theory can tell you is what the probability of something happening is going to be. It doesn't tell you what specific thing will happen. And that's sort of a a necessary kind of non-reproducibility. But in our theory of physics, that story becomes considerably more complicated in terms of how you interpret it. And in terms of the way that we as observers of the universe, are. uh, this this is gonna get complicated to describe this. But I think it's fair to say that that there is a, a notion of reproducibility of what in our theory would be called the multi-way graph. This is sort of the graph of all possible quantum histories that that can be reproducible, but the particular observation that a particular observer makes because that observer has certain arbitrariness about sort of how they're observing what's going on, what they see may not be reproducible even though what's in a sense fundamentally there is reproducible. But that's a a significantly more complicated uh, uh, kind of question. There's a comment here. Okay, this is a more, um, uh, uh, actually just put live on the web, I might, might comment. Uh, I did some, uh, as part of our annual summer school, I did some interviews with some scientists and others um, that were initially just intended for our summer school students, but the interviews were kind of interesting. And so we've, we've put them out on the web. Um, and you'll find the first set of maybe five or so of them that are out there. And I'm actually planning to do a weekly kind of interview with uh, uh, some interesting scientist. I have to say that I have a very uh, sort of personal objective with these interviews, which is I'm trying to learn stuff from them. And I hope the interviews will be interesting, and other people will learn things too. But my number one objective and my number one uh, criterion for for picking people to talk to is really things that are sort of in the path of things that I'm trying to research and I'm trying to understand, because that kind of gives me a, a among other things that that's well that's as I say my personal objective there, and it also gives me a particular kind of direction for um, uh, for what what uh, if if one talks to somebody who's been doing interesting science all their life so to speak, uh, there's 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 too much to talk about in an hour. Um, And so I will be trying to focus these things based on particular things that that I'm interested in. Um, So let's see. Uh, There's a question here. Um, Wow. Okay, there's a question from Carop. Will teleportation ever be possible? And even if only, say, for a photon stream, someone could send a probe into a black hole and be able to transmit back images across the event horizon or something. Okay, let's explain what teleportation is. Um, Teleportation is you're here now. Instantaneously, you're somewhere else A moment later. So you can clearly go from here to somewhere else by just, you know, walking there or getting in a spacecraft and going there. But that takes a bunch of time. The question is, can you instantaneously show up on the other side of the earth or show up on the other side of the galaxy or whatever else? Is it possible to uh, do something that's like in, you know, the Star Trek transporter, kind of idea where you're, you're one place and then you're, you're suddenly somewhere else. Now, it, it's worth commenting that even sort of the junior version of teleportation might be, you're here now, you travel at the speed of light to somewhere else, and then you, are, then you show up at that other place. Right now, if we take light, photons making up light, they're always traveling at the speed of light. But we, made of ordinary atoms and ordinary matter and so on, we don't go at the speed of light. We are made of particles that have mass. Photons have zero mass. Zero mass things go at the speed of light. Non-zero mass things just kind of sit there. Unless you push them very hard, then they'll go. Then they, they, you can push them. And, and it's, it's actually, as you try and make them go faster and faster, uh, What one of the consequences of relativity theory is that as you try and make something go closer and closer to the speed of light, the amount of force with which you have to push the thing increases dramatically as you get closer to the speed of light. And in fact, you'll never reach the speed of light with any finite force for any massive object. You'd be pushing harder and harder and harder. The thing is going faster and faster and faster. Like the the fastest things we do on Earth with particles are in particle accelerators. And there we take things like protons, and we accelerate them to 99.99 whatever percent of the speed of light. They are the fastest things on, on Earth, other than photons, are the particles in a particle accelerator. And uh, that's, um, and so you might say, well, gee, why don't you just take you, know, you and sort of put you in a particle accelerator and wind you up somewhere else? Well, the problem is the only things we have in particle accelerators are individual protons going around. So unless you want to be disintegrated into individual protons, you're kind of out of luck in a particle accelerator. Now the question is, well, what if you could, uh, let's say that you wanted to teleport a lump of plastic. Okay, well, here's how you could do that. You could have a 3D scanner and it could figure out what the geometry of that plastic is. You could turn that geometry. You could just send the signal that says, here's the geometry. You could send it by, uh, you know, a radio or something at the speed of light, and at the other end there's a 3D printer, and it prints out that um, uh, that same shaped lump of plastic. So in a sense, you've teleported that piece of plastic, uh, in the sense that you took the a version of that piece of plastic, and maybe maybe for extra uh, sort of for extra teleportation points, you can destroy the original piece of plastic, and then it's as if. You started with this one piece of plastic, you did all these things to it. it at the speed of light, you moved it somewhere else, it was re- reconstituted there. That's actually, I think in the in the kind of backstory to Star Trek, I think the transporter, the concept there is it's sort of breaking things down into individual atoms, sending the information about those atoms and reconstituting at the other end. That's kind of the, the science fiction backstory to that. So that's one sort of form of teleportation. We don't know how to do it except for things like lumps of plastic right now. Maybe in the future, when we have molecular scale manufacturing, when we can actually construct an arbitrary collection of atoms arranged in molecules and all those kinds of things, maybe when... We can do that, which I think will be possible at some point in the future, to do kind of molecular scale construction, sort of atom by atom. We can do that in very simple cases right now with atomic force microscopes. With an atomic force microscope, you can basically pick up an individual atom of, uh, I don't know, silicon or something and put it down in a different place. It's rather slow to do it because you're doing it atom at a time. That's not the best way to build things. But still, we we can more or less do that. But it requires being on solid surfaces and all that kind of thing. The idea of just being able to say, here's a design, here's a, you know, I've drawn out my design for the molecule. I want press go, make that molecule. We can't do that for arbitrary molecules. There's another special case where we can do it, which is for DNA. Um, We know how to make small sequences of DNA, reasonably small sequences of DNA with arbitrary sequences of base pairs. And the big thing that sort of life discovered is how to take uh, a DNA sequence and use it to make protein sequences of amino acids that then are molecules of different shapes and so on. But we don't know how to do that in more generality than the particular of the thing that's been discovered by the evolution of life on earth, namely the DNA, RNA, amino acid protein type type sequence. But so maybe one day we will be able to reconstruct things at a molecular scale and kind of the scan it, get figure out where, where every atom is, send the information about that, reconstitute it at the other end. That's one kind of form of of sort of junior teleportation, let's say. The other form of teleportation is something where literally the the actual, somehow the actual thing winds up in a different place at, at, let's say, zero, at, at infinite speed rather than just at the speed of light. Okay, so one of the places where this gets confusing is in quantum mechanics. There is a notion of teleportation and and here's roughly how that works the sort of this the story of classical mechanics is always that definite things happen in the universe you uh drop a stone it falls in a definite trajectory in quantum mechanics the story is instead of definite things happening like that all possible things happen so you drop a stone and actually there are all these different possible paths the stone could follow They're all in some sense followed, and the typical way we observe quantum mechanics is through um, kind of uh, uh, our particular sampling of that set of possible quantum histories. So the the thing that, um, and and what we've understood actually from our physics project is a lot about how that sort of structure of quantum histories works. Um, it's, It's a rather elaborate thing where there's sort of, at any moment you can have, One state of the universe, it can branch into two, those can branch again, but then different branches can sometimes merge. Different histories of the universe could end up actually in the same state of the universe. And that branching and merging phenomenon, it's a very important phenomenon that leads to this kind of quantum entanglement uh, phenomenon. But the main thing is there's branching and merging of all these different possible histories for the universe. Very confusingly. When we are observing the universe, our brains are effectively branching and merging in the same kind of way. So the story of quantum mechanics and quantum measurement ends up being a story of how does a branching brain perceive a branching universe? And that's a tricky thing. And you can represent it using some of the mathematics, uh, some fairly advanced mathematics that's kind of been uh, emerging from pure mathematics and from cat- from from. Uh, Uh, from quantum mechanics in in recent years, and it's now rather clarified in in our project. But um, uh, so, okay, what happens is, in that kind of multi-way graph of all these possible quantum histories, you can sort of lay out the possible quantum histories at a particular moment in time. When I say lay them out, you're not laying them out in ordinary space. You're laying them out in what we call branchial space, the space of possible quantum branches. And that branchial space, Has many attributes like physical space, but it isn't physical space. And so one of the attributes that it has is just like in physical space, the fastest you can go is the speed of light. In branchial space, the fastest you can go is a new thing that we've realized, which is this maximum entanglement speed. We don't know how big the maximum entanglement speed is. We think it might be around, it's in weird units, around 100,000 solar masses per second. but, uh, that that's in weird units because the the, the, the notion of distance in branchial space is, is kind of it's not measured in meters it's measured in other kinds of units so in any case the um, uh, so there's this maximum speed in branchial space it's it's a it's some value but it's, it has nothing directly to do with the speed of light and physical space so what can happen is in quantum mechanics you can end up with something where different branches in branchial space have wound up different, in, in different places in branchial space corresponding to different places and w- those different outcomes have, have some object to different places in physical space. And so, well, it's kind of a long story, but, but um, you can end up with something where, with respect to the measurements you do, you will appear to have teleported something from one place to another. In when you try and sort of trace back what information had to get exchanged in order to know what measurements to do, you actually have to have sort of a back channel that exchanges information through physical space at kind of the speed of light. But nevertheless, you can you can do the um, uh, the, the the this teleportation. Protocol will allow you, if you have that back channel information exchanged, then uh, which can only happen at the speed of light, then other things can happen seemingly instantaneously. Although we think actually it isn't really instantaneous; it's actually at something related to this maximum entanglement speed, and it will be interesting to try to measure that. And that's a that's a whole different story. But so that's kind of a notion of, of teleportation that happens there, and I don't think that that is um, uh, that's more of a kind of a a trick of how the measurement process works and how these kind of branching brains in in quantum measurement work than it is an actual, I'm going to move this from here to there. Now, there are other effects. Uh, One, this is kind of tricky, when in our models, space, so in, in the usual thinking about space, it's just like space is just a place where you put stuff you can say i'm going to put something in this position in space i'm going to put something in this position in space there's no question of sort of what space is made of in our models space like a fluid like water is made of molecules so space is made of a whole collection of discrete points that we can kind of kind of somewhat whimsically call atoms of space they're not r- real atoms they're something much more conceptual. They're just geometrical points that define the content of space. Okay. So what, what then can happen is, and this is now going to get a bit tricky, but, but what then can happen is there's this question of, of what does it take? Uh, well, I I wrote this whole piece actually last year about, um, faster than light travel in our models. And, um, uh, I think this would take me a while to explain how this works, but, well, I'll I'll give it a try. So, okay, how is space, what is space made of? Space is all these points, and these points have connectivity information. Each point knows which other points it's, so to speak, friends with. It knows which points are related to which other points, and that's how we define all of space. And the notion that we can kind of think of space as this thing which is laid out and where we go from here to there to the next place, that's all sort of emerging from a large number of of different geometrical points with all these different connections. Okay. And the way it works is at every moment, space is being recreated. There are little updates that are happening of those connections are getting changed to other connections. And at every moment, everywhere in space, there are those updates happening. If it wasn't for those updates space would not be knitted together we wouldn't be able to have a notion of adjacent pieces of space and things like this that's a consequence of continuing activity in space and in a sense most of the activity of the universe is actually the maintenance of space all the things that we're familiar with you know electrons and quarks and all those kinds of things those are just some you know trillion 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 trillionth piece of everything that's going on in the universe most of what's going on in the universe is essentially the maintenance of space. And in a sense, if we were to, if we had a way to look at it sort of microscopically, what we would see is that it's like kind of molecules in a gas, they're all just bouncing around, but together they have the effect of making this gas and it has a certain pressure and so on. Similarly, we would see all these atoms of space doing very complicated things, but together they make something which kind of seems like space as we experience it. Okay, so tricky thing is, Let's imagine we're just looking at molecules of gas in a room. And we say, I want to go, I want to ride a molecule from one side of the room to the other. Okay, so most of the time in in air, for example, at standard pressure, the mean free path of an atom or molecule is very short. So most of the time, most air molecules will go uh, a, a tiny, tiny distance before they hit another air molecule, and then they'll hit another air molecule and so on. And as they, they each time they hit an air molecule, they'll be, they'll be sent in a random direction. And so if you're riding an air molecule, it's going to follow this kind of random walk from one side of the room to the other. It's going to kind of just, uh, and that means that it's going to go rather slowly from one side of the room to the other, because sometimes they'll go forwards a step. It'll go take one step forward, one step sideways, one step back, and so on. And the average distance that you go after a time t is about square root of t. It doesn't it it, it? it goes slowly. Okay. Well, but if you were very clever and you could kind of see all the molecules in the room and you could pick particular molecules you say, okay, I'm going to go on this molecule for this micron distance, and then I'm going to hop to this other molecule. I'm going to ride it for the next micron and then this molecule and then this molecule. And I'm going to predict exactly what sequence of molecules I should follow. Well, then you will not be subject to this kind of random walk. You'll be able to pick a series of molecules, you'll be able to kind of pick these stepping stone molecules and you'll be able to hop across the room actually at the speed molecules go out, which is basically the speed of sound. So if you were clever enough at the level of molecules, you would be able to hop molecule to molecule and travel through the air at the speed of sound just by riding molecules. Okay, now in practice, we can't do that. Because the, we have, it's very hard to foresee what all the molecules are going to do. And we don't have things at the scale of individual molecules. And it's just completely impractical. But it turns out that, well, there is the same kind of, kind of possibility in space. There are just as this kind of all these interactions between atoms and space and so on. If we pick the exact right ones to be associated with, we could go at something which is actually more than the speed of light. The speed of light is more or less the speed that would correspond. It doesn't correspond. It's okay. It's, there's, there's some confusing aspects to this whole thing about about the analogy between gas molecules and atoms of space. They're not quite as analogous as I'm making it sound, but but roughly the um, there's a there's a speed of light that is the sort of the average speed that, that the average maximum speed that things go at, but. There is the possibility if you pick the exact right sort of atoms of space to ride, that you could go faster than the speed of light. Um, and uh, that uh, yeah, I'm 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 a bunch of things about the way that space is actually made. And you're sort of you're sort of beating the way that space is knitted. You're you're finding these kind of tunnels in space uh, that are, sort of go outside of the kind of main structure of space but that allows you to do things where you're going essentially faster than the speed of light. And so if you could, if you could make use of those space tunnels, you could teleport. And the, uh, one of the things people talk about in traditional ideas about, about the structure of space time are these things called wormholes. You can't create a wormhole in the standard theory of relativity. You can, in our models of physics, Um, because they they have more detailed information about the structure of space-time. And so they allow you to understand how you can actually create a thing which has kind of holes in it and so on from a thing that doesn't. You can't understand that in the traditional theory of relativity and the traditional general relativity. But in any case, the, in traditional general relativity, you can have these wormholes, which are kind of ways in which you can go like a worm can have a hole from one sort of piece of soil to another. You're, you're going from one piece of space time to another piece of space time sort of in a different path than, than the traditional one where you're just going through every, every intermediate step in space time. One of the downers about wormholes in traditional relativity is that to maintain a wormhole, you need a negative mass thing. You need negative energy. You need something where gravity is not attractive as it usually is with positive mass things. You need something where its mass is negative so that it can have repulsive gravity um, that uh, is needed to sort of hold the wormhole open. Um, But in traditional traditional models, the only way you get a wormhole is to already have a wormhole. In our models, you can create space tunnels, which are a little bit different from wormholes. They're a little bit of a generalization of wormholes. You can create them without having one to begin with. And in fact, constantly, in the as space evolves, there will be little tiny space tunnels produced all over the place. Whether you can line them all up to make something you can travel through is a different issue. But so that's kind of a... A, you know, we're very far away from the technology for being able to do these things, whether that technology is conceivable to make uh, in our universe, I don't really know, um, but never say never in terms of what is technologically possible. Um, it, uh, there are many things, even in my lifetime, I think of gravitational wave detection, for example, where um, uh, it's like, well, well, we'll never be able to observe it, but then one can. Actually, uh, another effect that's kind of fun that I was, uh, uh, you know, we, I talked about the, the things that go fastest, the, the, the forms of matter that go fastest on our planet are in particle accelerators. So there are protons whizzing at very close to the speed of light around particle accelerators. Gravitational waves are produced when massive objects kind of accelerate in, in certain ways, And in fact, there will be gravitational waves produced by particle accelerators. There's uh, a thing called synchrotron radiation, which is uh, usually electromagnetic radiation that uh, comes about when you are making a particle stay in a circular path, because to make it stay in a circular path, uh, it has to be accelerated, because if it wasn't being accelerated, it would just keep going in a straight line. And and that process of, of keeping it, accelerating it, will emit this thing called synchrotron radiation, usual synchrotron radiation is electromagnetic radiation, it's gamma rays, X-rays, things like that. But there will also be gravitational synchrotron radiation, a tiny uh, uh, amount of gravitational radiation. Actually, I think on the surface of the earth, the biggest source of gravitational radiation is probably protons in particle accelerators. Um, and, uh, but that right now looks like a ridiculously, immeasurably small amount of gravitational radiation. I'm sure that in time it will become possible to actually measure that. Um, and that's uh, just an example of sort of the progress of these things that at first seem like they're just sort of too small an effect to ever be important. Um, and, uh, but then it turns out that uh, eventually one can, one can measure them and sometimes even make use of them for, for technology. Well, I think um, we're getting to the end of our time here today. Um, uh so many interesting questions all right well i think we have to leave these for um another time Uh, i might say for people who are um uh who find these answers interesting um the um uh we have been posting previous iterations of these live streams um and actually through some nice technology that we have there are word clouds generated from the transcripts from the automated transcripts of the things i've been talking about so you can kind of see if you scan through the the uh the episodes you can kind of see what types of questions were being addressed in them and actually the uh sort of uh, uh shortened versions of the questions themselves were we adding in to those um uh uh, to, to that, to those, uh, website, um, uh, entries. So you can kind of find questions you might be interested in. Um, all right. Well, thanks for joining me here. And, um, uh, there are lots of interesting questions saved up for next time. And I look forward to more questions next time. And, um, uh, I find it very interesting to give these answers and I figure out things as I'm, um, as I'm describing them. Maybe I should be telling you when I, when I figured out things I hadn't figured out before. Um, today, there were uh, four or five of those, um, but uh, they're kind of not relevant to what's being described. They're just relevant for me internally because it's like, oh, I hadn't noticed that connection before. Um, anyway, look forward to uh, seeing you all another time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.